This is um, lecture number four in our series, God's Glorious Salvation. We started this uh, series looking at um, Jude, uh, the first first few verses where uh, the Lord's half-brother eagerly wanted to talk about our salvation, and he was redirected to deal with some heretical things that were happening in his world. Well, we have the opportunity to to look at at, uh, the nature of salvation now. We started with a a very uh, quick overview of God's sovereignty because that's at the heart of um, what the scriptures teach regarding our salvation. God, um, by his sovereign choice, chose... Uh, particular individuals to whom he would display his mercy. He has the right, as God, to do whatever he wants. And he chooses to show mercy to some and not to others. And we are not the ones that can uh, argue with God. God will do always what God chooses to do. And um, from there we went on a a bit of a historical examination of uh, three men in one generation, all born within just a few years of each other, uh, a a, a British bishop by the name of Pelagius, a um, North African bishop by the name of uh, Augustine or Augustine, and and then a scholar by the name of uh, John Cassian. And all of them were looking at uh, the nature of our salvation and they had completely different perspectives. Last week, I gave you a, uh, a handout that was blank, and you filled in that blank, and I, uh, you, you should have today, um, everybody got a chart? Did you get a chart? Okay. Um, so, so this is just a review of where we, where we were the, the last couple of weeks. With regard to this question, how was a man saved? Pelagius, answered the question, well, a man is saved by his own efforts. Man has a free will. Man is morally neutral. Sin has had no effect because every person born has the same opportunity that Adam and Eve had. They can choose to do good or they can choose to do evil. God's grace is not necessary um, in Pelagius' view. because man can do what is right. And uh, it's a position called autosotorism. And the church in, um, in, in 418 at Carthage and again at 431 in Ephesus declared that the position regarding our salvation heretical, completely outside of um, what the Bible says. Augustine was the one who championed the biblical position, and his position came to be called Augustinianism. Um, in the midst of uh, this debate between Pelagius and Augustine, another man came, came around, a, a scholar by the name of John Cassian, and Cassian said, now wait a minute, guys, I, I think there's some middle ground here. Um, God certainly is involved in salvation, and Cassian would say that God's grace is, uh, is necessary. 
Um, but, 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 but man is, is not dead in his sins, Cassian argued. Um, man is, is weak, very, very weak, such that he, he really has to have God's grace in order to, to be saved. Um, but man, in his, uh, in his nature, is, is basically good. And this is where we find a lot of people um, in churches today. They are what we call semi-Pelagian. Not semi-Augustinian, but semi-Pelagian. Um, this, uh, now, in, um, uh, in, in 529, uh, the church declared Cassian's semi-Pelagian view heretical. Uh, outside of orthodoxy, outside of uh, the biblical um, uh, standard. And hence, uh, the, at the bottom of your, um, of your paper, I, I said this is, this is heterodoxy. Remember the, the Greek word dokeo uh, means to think, and heteros means uh, other. So, so this is to think other than according to the standard. So, so you can have you can have orthodox standards um, within the medical field, or some engineering field, or some medical or some uh, some scientific uh, uh, aspect of life. So, so uh, some, something that is orthodox is thinking straight according to a standard. Well, in theology, the standard is the scripture. So, so that which is orthodox is that which is true to or in keeping with the standard of scripture. Now in uh, the medieval church, oh, 100 years after uh, Augustine and Pelagius and Cassian were, were drawn back and forth and writing back and forth, uh, a thousand years later, uh, Middle Ages, the church is clearly semi-Pelagian. And maybe most notably, um, from the the words and the decree of the uh, the uh, Pope uh, Innocent the Third, he is arguably most historians will say he he was the most powerful pope ever, and he uh, he had very very strong opinions on how things ought to be, and the way things were. It was Innocent III that, um, that established, uh, codified, made it, made it um, the rule of the land, if you will, the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And by these seven sacraments, uh, Rome guaranteed your salvation from womb to tomb. So as long as you followed the prescription of the Roman church, you're saved. Now in their, their, in their semi-Pelagian view, it was self plus God plus the Roman Catholic church that got you saved. They would always say that we are saved by God's grace. But we are saved by God's grace when we um, comply to the demands, the dictates of Rome. Um, now, this was uh, this was confirmed uh, 
even at uh, the Council of Trent. I mentioned that last week. I didn't um, uh, give you any quotes on that, and I don't want to take the time to do that now. But if you're interested and curious, I can, I can point you to exactly where in, uh, in the, uh, the Council of Trent you can find the, the semi-Pelagian thread. Now, um, at the risk of oversimplification, uh, the Reformation took place out of the, 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 the milieu, the, the circumstances of, of semi-Pelagianism um, over the, these two, two issues, the authority of Scripture and justification by faith alone. It was this last phrase that I just used, justification by faith alone, that Martin Luther said, the church will stand or fall on that doctrine. It is absolutely vital, so incredibly important that that um, uh, that we see that that this this is what what uh, historians call the, the the material cause, the the stuff, the material out of which the Reformation came. It had to do with the nature of our salvation. Are we justified? Are we declared righteous by God because? of a sole act of God? Or are we declared righteous because of God's work as well as our faith or our good deeds? Do I contribute anything to my salvation? There's, there's, the, there's the, the, uh, the crux of the issue. And men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and so many others said, no, the, the church is off base. Semi-Pelagian has already been declared heretical by the church. That's where we are right now. We need to get back to the basics. We need, need to get back to the standard of, of what the Bible teaches, namely that a man is justified, a man is saved, not by anything I contribute, but by God's grace alone. And uh, so we find the five solas being a part of the, um, uh, the Reformation history. Um, sola fide, sola gratia, sola, uh, solus Christus, solus scriptura, and sola deo gloria. So all meaning that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures, alone, to the glory of God, alone. For man to declare that he has any input into our salvation is thievery. It is stealing glory from God, because he alone is the one who deserves all praise, all glory, all honor, because salvation is a work of God, work of God, just as Jonah declared, chapter 2. Salvation is of the Lord, period. Now, um, the, uh, the reformational truths were defined and they were codified in writing after, in, even in the middle of the, the uh, 16th century. Um, I, I would um, um, direct your attention to, to, to a guy by the name of Guido de Brie. 
Guido de Brie. Guido. He was a Dutch itinerant preacher. And Guido was asked by the Dutch Reformation Church, Reformed Church, to write a statement that expressed the, uh, the, the doctrinal position of uh, those Reformed believers there in, in, um, in, in Holland. Uh, in Belgium, actually, he was. Um, and, the, and that statement was to be presented to King Philip II of Spain. Now, King Philip was, was, uh, was the guy over the land. He was the king in charge. And he was um, the puppet for the, the pope. So there, there was a great deal of persecution of those people that had protested all of what was going on in the Roman church. So the Dutch Reformed churches got together and they said, um, Guido, would you please write a statement? We're going to hand this to, 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 um, to, to King Philip II, and, and hopefully he will see that we are a law-abiding group of people. And we will comply with his demands as long as they do not violate our faith and our convictions. So he wrote that statement. In 1561, it was the beginning of what's called the Belgic Confession. Um, It was translated into Dutch the next year, 1562, and was adopted by those churches as the standard for um, uh, for their their uh, their for their churches. Um, as a as a summation of what does the Bible teach us, thirty seven articles in it. Um, now, there were a few revisions, but in the Council of Dort, that we'll talk about here in just a moment in in sixteen eighteen, that was made official and and a requirement for every uh, official in the Dutch Reformed Church to sign. They had to sign off on, I agree to this statement as a summary of what the Bible teaches. It didn't only deal with salvation, dealt with, as is typical with a lot of of reformational confessions, nature of God, nature of man, nature of Christ, nature of salvation, nature of the church, nature of last things. Um, Now, here's the rest of the story of why that became so important that all officials sign the Belgic Confession for the Dutch Reformed Churches. Let me uh, let me let me give you uh, some. I'm going to erase just a couple things here. I'm going to give you some some dates. Um, here's the Reformation in brief. 1517 was the, the year that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. That's what a lot of historians will mark as the beginning of the Reformation. 1546, Martin Luther is dead. 
1564, John Calvin is dead. Right in here. 1559. <coughs> A man is born by the name of Jacob Arminius. So he is, he's, uh, he's five years old when John Calvin dies. Arminius um, was a converted man, and he went to Geneva, where John Calvin served and ruled. <laughs> and he sat under the teaching of John Calvin's successor, a man by the name of Theodore Beza. Now, when um, Arminius was done with his schooling and the whole mentorship process where he was, was being mentored and coached by Beza, Beza wrote a letter to the Dutch Reformed churches from which Arminius came. And he said, Beza said, um, I, I find this to be a, a good man. Use him as, as you see fit. And so Arminius pastored a couple of churches. And there was a little bit of buzz. Um, because Beza was using all the right language. But there was something that was just a little, little bit off. Well, he took on a professorship at the University of Leiden. And there, well, where he met with students, many of which he met with privately, the church became even more concerned about what he was teaching. But the university said, hands off. He belongs to us. You may not question him. You may not censure him. Well, there was so much question about what was going on with this man um, that remained unanswered. He dies in 1609. Interesting. Calvin was born in 1509. All right. Um, so James Arminius, Jacob Arminius, goes by both names. Jacobus, actually. Um, he, he's dead in, 50, in 1609, and he is um, still on the books as a, um, as a uh, minister in good standing with the Dutch Reformed Church. All kinds of questions. He tended to be a reserved and quiet man. He had his views... And his views were different, uh, but he usually kept those to himself and to his students. It was his students that came out in um, 1610. 42 of them. And they, they signed up a, a, a petition to the government asking for protection. They wanted protection because they knew their views, which they got from their professor, 
would not be received well in the Dutch Reformed Church. Oh, and how correct they were. They said, um, there are five things that we, we, we have problems with re, with regard to um, this, this teaching that's being called Calvinism. And they identified them as these. I put these in your notes. Here, here, here's our problem, these, um, the, these ministers said, former students of uh, Arminius. Uh, we, we have a problem with um, conditional election, or, or, or well, these are, these are um, affirmations from them. Let me, let me explain. They said that our election is conditional meaning that God elects to salvation on the basis of men and women meeting certain conditions, namely the conditions of repentance and faith. So they said, we have a problem with with this Calvinistic teaching, um, and we believe that the scriptures teach that there is a conditional election. God looks down the corridors of time and he sees those who will repent and believe and on that basis he elects them to salvation. They said, okay, here's, here's our second problem. We believe in a universal atonement. We believe that Jesus came and he died for the sins of the whole world. Isn't that what the scriptures teach? (coughs) They said uh, all men can be saved. The cross of Christ is sufficiently meritorious to win the salvation of every man, woman, and child without exception. And here's our third problem. They said, we, we believe that man is totally depraved. Well, they mean something different than what I mean when I use that word, that phrase. It, it, what, what they meant by, by uh, depraved is man is very, very, oh, very, very sick. I mean, almost, almost dead sick. Not quite dead. They believed that there was an island of righteousness, as they called it, within man that enabled him to uh, repent and believe. Fourth, they believed that God's grace is sufficient but is resistible, meaning that if God knocks on the door of your heart, and calls you unto salvation, you have the freedom, uh, you have the ability to say, thanks, but no, God, I'm not interested today. They believed that you could resist God's work of grace. Here's the fifth thing that they said. We we are uncertain about this, this idea of the preservation of the saints. 
um, they believe that, well, they, they were unsure. What, what happens to that person who turns their back on the Lord? Could that person, assuming that they were genuinely saved in the first place, could that person lose the benefit of their salvation? And they said, yeah, we're not sure yet. So we, we have this um, as a, a point of contention, um, but we're, we're not settled here on our, in our own thinking as of yet. Let me, uh, let me read you a, a statement by uh, a William Law, uh, who, who was an older contemporary of, of John Wesley. We'll get to him, uh, of Wesley, in just a minute. He said this. He, he is, he's typical of this Arminian thinking. Quote, we are to consider that God only knows what shortcomings in holiness he will accept. Let me read that again. We are to consider that God only knows what shortcomings in holiness he will accept. Therefore, we can have not security of our salvation, but by doing... Um, we, 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 why is it? Maybe I typed it wrong. It should read something like this. Therefore, we cannot have security of our salvation, but by doing our utmost to deserve it. We have nothing to rely on but the sincerity of our endeavors and God's mercy. In other words, he said, um, we, we cannot have any kind of security in our salvation um, because my salvation is based on my faith. If the foundation is removed, my faith is no longer there. I have no assurance that God would ever do anything good to me. So, so my goodness is dependent, or my salvation is dependent upon my goodness, as well as God's mercy. You see that that's that that's that's the typical semi-Pelagian view. Now, let me uh, um, well here, here. Let me give let me give you an assessment here, an initial assessment of of the um, uh, semi-Pelagian view. Um, um, Calvinists answered in uh, 1611, uh, the, the next year after these 42 uh, men came forward asking for protection from the government, um, from the church by the government. Uh, th these Calvinists answered with the contra remonstrance. The, these guys. Uh, here in, in 1610, were, were called the remonstrants, meaning uh, the protesters. Uh, they were they were the ones who were uh, petitioning for 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 um, some help. They addressed the Armenians' objections point by point. So these five objections are how the Calvinists responded. And we, we often hear of, of the, the five points of Calvinism. Um, they were a response to these guys in protest. It, 
it never was intended to be a summation of, of, um, uh, of, of Calvinistic thinking. Uh, they were simply answering some objections, some hesitations. Uh, there are some that viewed this position of the uh, students of Arminius as a return on the Protestant side to Rome. So, so they were, they were and, and you can see it, if, if the Reformation was a response to semi-Pelagianism and these um, uh, Arminians were in reaction to the Reformation and they were saying virtually the same thing that Rome was saying, you could see how, how, how um, some of the, uh, the, the Calvinists uh, would say Arminianism is, is uh, a return to Rome. English Puritans like uh, John Owen, Richard Sibbs, um, Thomas Goodwin immediately criticized uh, this um, Arminian thinking. And uh, they said we, we, are, we are returning um, to a, a, a man-centered uh, message we, we are abandoning the God-centered message of the gospel. I want to, I want to read a statement by um, the English Puritan uh, William Ames. He was called to the Council of Dort. I should write that number down here, too. Um, Council of Dort uh, met whoops, uh, 1618 to 1619. Uh, it was at that conference called a synod that leaders, I think there were like um, church leaders from eight different countries that gathered together. Uh, they looked at uh, this, this whole thing of, uh, by, by Arminius and they, uh, they, uh, these are the ones who, who, who uh, actually crafted the, the um, um, uh, much of the the uh, Calvinistic views in response to the to the uh, Armenians. Um, anyway, it, it, William Ames was was called as a legal and theological expert to Dort, and he said this: the the view of the Remonstrants, these protesters from Armenians, as it is taken by the mass of their support, su supporters, is not strictly a heresy but a dangerous error tending toward heresy. As maintained by some of them, however, it is the Pelagian heresy, because they deny that the effective operation of inward grace is necessary for conversion. So we, uh, we, we come down to, uh, to uh, the, the Synod of Dort, and they insisted that all officials in the Dutch Reformed Church sign the Belgic Confession that says we are adhering to this summation of biblical truth as our standard of faith and doctrine, uh, as, a, as a direct um, uh, reaction to uh, the, the views of the Arminians. Now, let, let, me, let me diverge here. We're going we're to talk about Arminius, and we're going to fill in this this uh, this blank here. But but let me let me jet 
forward another hundred years to John Wesley because there is, there is a wide umbrella in Arminianism all the way from full Pelagianism as William Ames observed um, to those that are called the evangelical Arminians. Uh, there's, there's a, there is a, a, way, a range here. John Wesley, um, born in 1703, uh, adopted his mother Susanna's antipathy for Calvinism. She hated Calvinism. Anything that breathed of Calvinism, she hated it, loathed it. She called it blasphemous, devilish, and spiritually ruinous. She hated everything that had to do with the name Calvin. Um, John Wesley drank that Kool-Aid. And he repeated over and over a, um, uh, an unfair, inaccurate caricature of Calvinism, sadly. You, you, would, you would think that someone of, of, of his stature, uh, knowledge, he was very close to George Whitfield, strong Calvinist, you, you would think that he would um, have the integrity to look carefully at his, his false caricatures. But he repeated them over and over again. He said of, of Calvinists, uh, they are antinomian. They are anti-law. Um, and related to that, he said they are fatalistic. Uh, they, they, they have no moral responsibility and they are um, not people who are concerned about holiness. He said it's um, another one of his criticisms. He said that um, uh, Calvinists are restrictive. They, 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 uh, they preach God's love um, not to the world, but only to the elect. Which is a which is a, a, a gross and inaccurate uh, caricature. Um, sad. Um, now now Wesley diverged from the Remonstrance Arminians. Wesley believed that man is utterly, desperately completely in need of God's grace. He, he would be one that would be like, I, I would say this is my position, uh, he, he would agree with my definition of total depravity. Every, every aspect of life has been tainted with sin, and I have not the ability to... Um, uh, do that which pleases God, apart from his grace. Uh, he did not, um, no, let me, say it, let me say it positively. He, he, he affirmed the necessary conditions of re- repentance and faith to, um, uh, to save a person, however. So here's a question. How do you get from a person who is spiritually dead, unable to respond, and yet 
you have the necessary requirement of repentance and faith for God to choose you for salvation. How do you get there? Well, it, it is um, by, by way of, of a, a, an unbiblical doctrine called prevenient grace. So uh, Wesley affirmed, other evangelical Arminians affirm, that even though man is dead, and God's grace is absolutely a requirement, He still has to choose God before God chooses him. And he gets out of his spiritual dead state by means of God's prevenient grace. Now, by prevenient grace, they mean that God, um, uh, through Christ, has extended his grace to all mankind raising them from a state of spiritual deadness now to the uh, uh, giving them the freedom and the ability to make moral choices in so doing you have the responsibility as as do I when i hear the 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 the, the gospel message to respond to god and if the gospel message is not there I still have the responsibility to respond to God. And apart from that, I can still be saved. Hmm. Well, in Scripture, there, there is, no, um, there, there is no, no place to be found for two kinds of grace. There is one kind of grace. And... Um, you read in uh, in the book of Philippians, chapter one. Paul writes, "I am confident of this very thing: He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ." When God begins His work, He completes His work. When He extends grace, He 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 completes the work. John chapter six. We have recently looked at this. Verse 37 tells us, mm, all, that the, mm, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. When God extends his grace. He finishes the work. There's only one um, kind of grace, and that is salvific grace. Now, I, I, I do have to, to clarify here that when uh, we are called to preach the gospel, we preach the gospel to everyone, anyone, and that external call, that's a specific uh, theological term here, um, the external call goes out to all men, boys, girls, women, everybody, those who have the internal call of the spirit that is they they are they they are they have been born again so now they have the ability to respond to god when they are have received this internal call of god they respond so so there there is um there is one there is a an external calling of god 
But, but that's not the work of grace. The work of grace is what takes place inside. It's accompanied with the internal call of the Holy Spirit. And that person who is made alive in Christ is so alive and they are so aware of their sin and God's holiness and the need for Christ that that grace is irresistible. And it accomplishes everything that it sets out to do. Uh, Look with me at 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5. Are you there, Bobby? Almost? Almost? Okay. All right. First John chapter 5, it says this. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Now, we don't have the advantage of looking at the Greek text. We're we're all looking at English text. But the word, um, or the phrase, rather, translated is born Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God is a perfect passive indicative verb. Now, that's a lot of language that, that uh, simply means this. Voice, uh, verbs have a tense voice and mood. Uh, the mood is, is, is indicative, meaning um, that uh, this is, this is a, 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 a normal act normal activity. It's not, a, it's not a command like an imperative. Okay. Um, the, the, the passive says, the, the passive voice tells us that action is being done to this one. And it's in the perfect tense. Perfect means uh, that something has happened in the past and is continuing in the present. So when John writes that the one who believes in Jesus is born of God. He's saying this is a a natural course of events. It's passive. God has done something to this person. And the one who is believing is the one who has already been born of God. Meaning that you have to be born of God before you believe. It's right there in the text. All right. Um, now, we're, we're going to spend a good bit of time in the, in the text uh, next week, Lord willing. I was hoping again to do that this week, but there's just a little too much more information that we needed. Um, oh, let me, let, me, uh, let, me fill, let me fill out your, your, your chart, and then I have a surprise for you. All right, now when we deal with, let me assume, the 
I'm not going to repeat what we what we have already covered with regard to uh, Pelagius, Cassian, and Arminius, uh, Augustine rather. Uh, you'll you'll notice on your on your sheet as well as here on my blackboard. Um, these, these three guys are all in the same line. They're in the same generation. Arminius is more than a millennia after all these other three guys. So he comes way after the fact. Um, there there are, are different flavors of Arminianism, as I, I talked about, but, but they have this in common. Self plus God is the author of salvation. It is synergistic, just like um, uh, Cassian's semi-Pelagianism. Uh, the, the, the effect on man, sin's effect on man, he is weakened by, in, in, the, in the view of some, and he is dead in the view of uh, evangelical Arminians like uh, John Wesley. Man's spiritual condition, again, it's, it's divided. Man is basically good, or in, in the eyes of, of some Arminians, in the eyes of other, he is depraved. The condition of man's will, well, because of prevenient grace in their thinking, man is, is free. And with regard to God's grace, there is, again, a, a, a blending of Cassian's view and Augustine's view. Um, it is, um, for some, necessary, and for others, essential. Now you'll notice that there's a dashed line in the middle of my my uh, uh, thing here, and what what I what I'm trying to trying to do by that is um, there are some Armenians that we would say are clearly outside of orthodoxy. Their their views are heterodox. They are um, other than in keeping with the, the standard of scripture. And then there are other, um, what we might call evangelical Armenians, who are um, within orthodoxy. And we would say, um, like I've said many times, this is an intramural debate. Um, would I say that, that they are, are, are more right then I am in my view of things, absolutely not. <laughs> um, but um, they're, they're, though they do have some imperfections in their theology, um, um, I, I will still maintain fellowship with them. Okay. Uh, that, that, that concludes my lecture for this morning.